Hi, this is Debbie Morgan, and you're listening to The Spirit of Now, a podcast of Zeitgeist, Atlanta's home for the spiritually independent, and now reaching beyond Atlanta with our remote programs. Today on the show, we're going to talk to Carl McCollman about his upcoming workshop with us, Contemplation and Practice, Wisdom of the World's Mystical Traditions. Uh, Carl is just an amazing teacher. We're very excited. Uh, He is a commissioned centering prayer teacher, a life-professed lay associate of the Trappist monks, and the author of books like The Big Book of Christian Mysticism and An Invitation to Celtic Wisdom. While Carl's own practice is steeped in Christian contemplation, he's been active in the interfaith community for many years and has taught world mysticism courses through Emory Continuing Education and the Nishama Interfaith Center. So we're about to turn you over to that uh, interview with Carl. I do want to give us a heads up, though, um, as mysticism is such a part of transcending everyday life, but also being very intimately involved with everyday life. Uh, We had some everyday life interference during the interview, and uh, you may hear some angry neighbor yelling in the background. Uh, With our editing, it was a little hard to get that out. So be patient, and uh, it'll keep you listening. So here we are with Carl McCollman talking about our upcoming workshop in the fall, Contemplation and Practice, Wisdom of the World's Mystical Traditions. And Carl, we're happy, as always, to have you back teaching and also to have you talking with us today about that. So my first question is, what the heck is mysticism? (laughs) What are we wading into here? It sounds like uh, something very big and and, uh, billowous and hard to pin down. Tell us, oh, wise one. <laughs> okay, grasshopper. Um, <clears throat> the, it, it is a word that many people use in different ways. So it, so it is a tricky word to kind of, like you say, pin down, as it were. So I like to go back to kind of its root. It comes out of the Greek language, and it comes from the same root that we get mystery from. But not mystery in a Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew sense. Oh, More. Now, hey, you know, more, <laughs> more mystery in a, you know, you can't put it into words sense. Right. It's not so much a problem to be solved as, as entering into kind of a dimension of life that grammar, words, syntax, even thought ultimately don't take us all the way there. Where the, where mm. the mind has its limits, the heart can go the distance. So, so mysticism, yeah, mysticism invites us into the mystery, the mystery of God, the mystery of spirit, the mystery of the soul, the mystery of life, the mystery of love. And when we talk about a mystical spirituality, we're really just talking about that dimension of spirituality that brings us into that kind of deeply heart-centered space, that space mm-hmm. where we can, um, we can encounter that which cannot be named that which you know some people call god some people call spirit some people call the absolute or the ultimate the really real um you know all names break down but it's human nature to try to name the mystery so we keep doing that Mm -hmm. but i think it's, it's helpful to use a word like mysticism or mystery to remember that our language ultimately only takes us so far 
because that helps us to avoid traps like dogmatism or fundamentalism or those kinds of things that sometimes tend to separate us rather than really bring us into union. Mm-hmm. So the first image that comes to my mind for that is not so much on the where it goes place, but the where it stops place. It makes me think of the ways that our faith traditions explain to us that we meet God, for example, in our behavior or in scripture only, Mm -hmm. uh, or in the right belief system. And if we just say the right words, we get into the club. So you got to know the secret handshake, right? So doesn't mysticism brush up against that in a thorny way? Well, you know, it's interesting because there is speculation that all of the world's great religious traditions really began with some sort of a mystical encounter. You know, if you think about in, you know, the Jewish Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, you know, you have Moses encountering the burning bush. Mm-hmm. You have um, in the, the Christian New Testament, you have St. Paul encountering uh, the spirit of Christ while he was on the road to Damascus. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, this kind of thing seems to happen again and again. And you can find similar analogs in the other great wisdom traditions of the world. Certainly Muhammad had his encounter with the sacred mystery. Uh, you have the encounters with with um, with Krishna, you know, or or other deities in the Eastern traditions as well. So, um, I think it was the French poet. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, Charles Pigui, I think it is, who said that that you know what begins in mysticism ends in politics, and it's mm. you know it's it's a it's a one yeah it's a wonderful line and it's you know and I love it that he put it that way because it's not just true in a religious sense, but maybe even in a in an aesthetic sense, um, you know the um, you know you, uh, certainly in in politics or in in the way we we organize our our social lives as well, that you know that the mystical you know again is very much centered in the heart and very much centered in that kind of pure encounter. But human beings being human beings, we, we want to, you know, we want to build a monument. We want to have rules mm-hmm. and regulations. We want to have a club. And once we have the club, then, you know, then the question is who gets to be in the club and who doesn't, you know, and I, um, you know, a, a lot of people, I think, who, who embrace a, a deep and radical spiritual practice oftentimes feel like there isn't a place for them in the institutional religious mm. communities. Um, the mystics historically have tended to have one foot in and one foot out. And so mm-hmm. that's, that's something that I find very interesting. I think that, that, you know, institutional religion is sometimes is a very potent force for good. If you think about how Christians were at the forefront of the civil rights movement, for example, or, or, you know, or the abolitionist movement or whatever Quakers leading the charge to eradicate slavery. So you can see where sometimes even, you know, what we think of as religious people, as opposed to maybe spiritual people can still be real channels for divine light and, and, you know, divine transformation in the world. Mm 
Absolutely. But we all also know, I don't need to tell you, mm-hmm. we all also know how the institution can sometimes be very oppressive. It can yeah. sometimes really, really put limitations on us as well. So I think mysticism is that, that kind of spiritual nexus point where maybe the wisdom that you can find sometimes in the institution meets that more universal wisdom that can't be boxed. It can't be contained by any one culture or any one lineage. And so, um, you know, one of the things that you often find is that people who are drawn to mystical forms of spirituality, even if they're, you know, if they're devout Christians or devout Muslims or something like that, they tend to color outside the lines and they tend Mm. to want to learn from all of the world's great traditions, which is why, you know, I am a practicing Christian. I'm involved in the Christian religion, but, um, but I'm very comfortable with a community like Zeitgeist because this is a place where I know I can encounter Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and, you know, people, spiritually independent people who are interested in that deep mystical connection. And so, you know, back to the course, you know, one of my hopes for the course is that over the, you know, the, the time that we're together, we can look at some of these institutional expressions of spirituality to kind of appreciate these, these different expressions, if you will, you know, different mm-hmm. colors of the rainbow, mm-hmm. but then also to never lose sight of the entire rainbow and yeah. to recognize that there's also this dimension of spiritual wisdom that can't be contained by any one, you know, any one lineage or any one you know, dogma. Trying to find that sweet spot where you can appreciate these different wells, these different kind of sources, but then, then find how they actually can support one another for a more holistic spiritual uh, practice. Again, wherever you find yourself, you know, and, and, and I'm also somebody who radically believes in the beauty of diversity. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not a monoculturalist. I, I certainly don't think everybody needs to believe the same way or vote the same way or look the same way or talk the same way. And that, you know, it's, it's wonderful that, you know, there are radical different traditions. I, even if I became a Buddhist, I will never know Buddhism the way that somebody who grew up in Tibet will, right. you know, I don't speak the language, you know, I, I ha- it hasn't been, it hasn't been forming me since I was a little child, um, you know, and so uh, appreciating that there's that entire depth that I'll never fully know, but I can, I can at least get a taste of it. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, through the, through the graciousness and the generosity of, of wisdom teachers, from, say, for example, you know, to use my example from Tibet, who have come to America, who have written, and then their writings have been translated into English and so forth. So, you know, so the glass half empty, glass half full, we, we can never fully appreciate all of the wisdom that is presented to us, but we can have the wisdom that, that our, our finite bodies can contain. And that is, generally speaking, it's enough. It's enough to lead us to joy and it's enough to lead us to living lives of service and of deep transformation. Hmm. I think the beauty of leaning into the personal experience, that, that individual connection with the divine, I use the word individual loosely, um, <laughs> is it, it removes the potential for hierarchy. It removes the potential for power over it removes the potential for my interpretation of wisdom literature is correct and yours is not. Yeah. It, it creates an opening for that pure relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, um, oh, you know, we, we could play with this for a long time. 
because I think that one of the reasons why so many people are, are drawn to, to make that deep dive into a more experiential, more embodied uh, type of spirituality is because it's been denied to us. Right. You know, that, that, that too many of the institutions, you know, you picked on Catholicism, but, you know, I grew up a Protestant and I can tell you the Protestants can be just as bad. Oh, I, um, I will you know, agree. <laughs> you know, that, that so many of the institutions, you know, they get caught up in preserving the institution, you know, or in preserving the status quo. And this is why you see, you know, so many, so many churches put such an emphasis on sexual morality, for example. And, and what they're trying to do is, is trying to, to kind of revive a sexual morality that they think was the good old days. And what they forget is that in the good old days, it was just as bad. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, um, you know, but, but uh, I think it was one of my mentors, a man named Kenneth Leach, who said that, 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 you know, the shadow side of Christianity is always trying to restore the morality of the, of the grandparents' generation. You know, mm. and so that was just as true 50 or 60 years ago when there were people thinking, oh, it, we, we need to go back to the way it was in the 1930s. You know, the 1960s had gotten so bad, you right. know, and, and, and now people are saying, well, we need to go back to the 1950s, you know. And so it's, it's just, you know, rather than asking this question of, you know, how is the spirit at work in, in our lives and in people's lives today and, and looking for that, that you know, way of responding to the present moment. So yeah, so the, so the institution always has the risk of nostalgia, the risk of thinking it used to be better back then. And, and I think, you know, as, as I think you know, I, I tend to be a little allergic to the word experience because I think it has its own trap. But yeah. I like the word embodiment, you know, and I this like idea of, of an embodied spirituality, a spirituality that rests in my heart, in my gut, you know, in my bones, that, that that's, first of all, it's real, it's not abstract. And, and it, and it takes us right to where we need to be in terms of when you think of the wisdom teachings, you know, love your neighbors, you know, love your enemies, you know, be forgiving, be kind, be merciful, be compassionate. All of those are embodied mandates, embodied mm -hmm. invitations that, you know, that, and, and again, if you want to get into what, what mysticism is, I would argue that one of the, the universal kind of traits of a mystical spirituality is that it is a spirituality of embodying the divine, oh. embodying the sacred, yes. that we become manifestations of the sacred in human form. I think it was John O'Donohue, the Irish mystic, mm -hmm. who said, you know, that we are, that we are the spirit breathed into clay. You know, it's, it's just that that's it in a nutshell, you know, clay given, clay given life, clay given, given spirit. And so this beautiful marriage of earth and heaven, that's the dignity of what it means to be a human being. And most of us, we, we tend, we, again, we, we get lost in, I mean, very real issues in trauma and anxiety and, and fear in avarice or greed, you know, these kinds of things that, that oftentimes close us off from the, the miracle of simply being here. And simply being available to be in in relationship and to and to be agents of compassion and of change and of um, you know reconciliation. So you know, so mysticism on the one hand, it's very you know you were kind of teasing me. You know, it's this kind of you know sparklies out in the cloud kind of a you know union with God and all that kind of stuff. But on another hand, it's also very very down to earth. So it's, you know, it's not so much about getting us into heaven as it is about getting heaven into us. 
Oh, and so, love it. so, you know, so why do we, why talk about Christian mysticism and then Jewish mysticism and then, you know, um, Sufism, you know, why talk about these different schools? Well, you know, back to your three-legged stool analogy, you know, the embodied experience is unique to each one of us, but then what the, what those different traditions represent are different, different stories, different lineages, mm -hmm. different cultures, different languages. Um, you know, different ways of interpreting the embodied experience and then different ways of reflecting on how we actually express that. So, for example, in, in Kabbalah, you have the amazing kind of teaching about the tree of life, which is really, it's like a blueprint to the mind of God. So it becomes this really, you know, beautiful tool that, that we can use, that anyone can use to kind of, you know, kind of look under the hood of the engine that runs the divine, you know, the majesty of the divine, the heart of God. Why, why would we want to do that? Well, the question is, once again, how do you get that divine love, that divine uh, magic, if you will, into our hearts, you know, how do we, how do we bring the heart of God into our hearts? And, and, and what does that look like once we do? And, and the Kabbalah is an entire system that gives us insight into that. So, um, you know, so the different mystical traditions, it's like each one is a different path up the mountain. It's the same yeah. mountain looking at the same summit, but the view is going to be different from each one of the paths. Mm -hmm. And rather than getting into kind of an argument of, well, this path is better than that path, you know, um, it's like, well, why not celebrate them all? And why not celebrate the fact that you do have a different view, you do have a different experience on each one of the paths. And again, I'll never fully know what it means to be a Buddhist, but I can learn a little bit about it. And maybe my friends who are Buddhists can kind of give me a little bit of insight. Mm -hmm. And that leads to another thing that I'm, I'm hoping we're going to do in this program, you know, is that we, we will have a practice every, every night. So it won't just be, you know, me just, you know, blathering away for 90 minutes, you know, yeah, there will be a talk, there will be, you know, some discussion of material that, that we'll ask people to reflect on, but then we'll lead into a meditation experience that will be shaped by each one of the different traditions. So, you know, you can say, well, meditation is meditation is meditation, but there are different schools of meditation, different practices, different different techniques, different methods, if you will. And so we'll be looking at some of those different methods. In a seven-week course, you know, nobody's going to become a master mm -hmm. of any one, one tradition. But so it's a bit, you know, there's a, bit of, a little bit of spiritual speed dating going on. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, hey, you know, but the idea is that in that, even, even in a seven-week period, you, know, you begin to get a sense of what Ken Wilber calls the orienting generalization, you know, the a sense of the lay of the land. And then... What I'm hoping is that each person will walk away saying, yeah, you know, maybe Christian mysticism didn't really do it for me, but the Kabbalah, I can't get enough of that. Or right. Sufism, can't get enough of that or whatever. That's my flavor, yeah. You, you know, and then, and then, you know, again, not with, well, this is right, this is wrong, but rather this is where I'm called. This is how I can take my adventure of responding to the love of the divine, the love of God, deeper. Now, is this... Um... <clears throat> I don't want anybody to feel like we're going to be jumping in a deep end in a scary way. So what if I'm a beginner? What if I've never done this before? Is this going to be hard? Is it, you know? You know, well, the first thing I will say is that we're all beginners. I mean, mm -hmm. people who have, I've, I've been meditating since the early 1980s 
and I still feel very, very much like a beginner. Maybe it's because I'm a slacker at meditation. I don't know, but you know, that's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly, you know, and, and yet I've heard other people say, say similar things. So the first thing I would say is that the beautiful thing about, about spiritual practices is that they're, they're infinitely scalable and they're, you know, they're very accessible for somebody who's brand new, but they continue to be kind of challenging and invigorating even for the person who's been at it for 30 or 40 years. So, so there will be no assumption of prior experience or prior knowledge uh, right. on my part. So, so people of all levels of spiritual practice are, are welcome. But even, you know, for somebody who's been at it for a while, I would still say, you know, I hope, I hope you'll consider participating in this because I believe that there's always, you know, a new perspective, you know, to, to go back to the mountain analogy, you know, you take a little turn around that path and suddenly it's an entirely new vista. And so, you know, so hopefully, you know, we'll have the opportunity to, to offer some, some new insights for the old timers, as well as that, you know, invitation for folks who may be brand new to this. I'm so happy to hear that. An another question, thinking about practice, you know, when we were originally imagining what this might look like, we were imagining us in the same room and, um, you know, having that sense of presence together. And, you know, we're being, uh, invited to do this remotely. The universe is helping us uh, figure out how to figure that out. So how, how will, uh, you know, how will that be? What can I expect? Well, you know, I mean, we are in what now? March, April, May, June, July, month five of, you know, life with, life with COVID. And it's, you know, obviously this is very scary. And I think, you know, we're all very concerned. We're, you know, we want to stay healthy. We want our loved ones to remain healthy. Um, just, you know, for people who may not be familiar with me, I, a lot of the work that I do is traveling and going to different places and leading retreats and teaching classes on various aspects of the spiritual life. And so, as you can imagine, the month of March in 2020 was a difficult month for me because it was, I, you know, I, I now call it the month of cancellations yeah. because I basically, all of my work for the rest of the year just got canceled, just one after another after another. And I just saw all these trips that I had planned just one by one, you know, getting canceled. And, you know, and obviously there was some anxiety there because that was my livelihood as well. And then one community in, in St. Louis that I, I regularly work with. This was going to be my fourth time with them. They called me up and they said, we're going to have to cancel the retreat, but we don't want to leave you in the lurch. I mean, this moment of grace, they said, we still want to pay you. So can you do something for us online? And these are mostly, the, it was a group of Episcopalian women, some men too, but mostly Episcopalian, mostly older adults, you know, so people in their 70s and 80s. And they weren't even sure what they were asking for. They just had kind of this intuitive sense that we can do our retreat online. And it was a wonderful moment of invitation for me. And so, you know, I, I was familiar with Zoom because I've, I've been working on a podcast for the last several years, you know, and we do like what you and I are doing right now, you know, record interviews on Zoom and so forth. But it never had really occurred to me that you could actually create kind of a, a, a practice space, a spiritual 
practice space, even, even through, you know, video conferencing. But we just stepped into it. And, you know, and from the first week, I just was amazed at even though, you know, we were separated by many, many miles, at how present people were, at how effortlessly the ability to have conversation, to have Q&A, um, even to move into silence, to move into the meditation experience, that, um, you know, that, that the technology really does lend itself well. The only thing it doesn't really do is if everybody is like singing, you know, you're trying to sing the same song, you're trying yeah. to recite, recite the same prayer or something like that. For Zoom is just not ready for that. <laughs> Maybe two releases <laughs> from now. So, but that's okay. That's, you know, I think that's not something, you know, I mean, certainly, you know, chanting is a very beautiful and valid and important spiritual practice. Uh, we, that won't be part of this program because of the limitations, but, but that's really the only major limitation. And even if you talk about like on an energetic level, you know, and, and people have that sense, you know, if, if, to really learn meditation, you need to be in a room with other meditators. And I've had that experience. So I understand the power of that. I don't know that, you know, Zoom is maybe 100%, but I think it's still maybe 80 to 90%. I think there, you can still... You know, the spirit is not limited by miles. So you can still have that kind of energetic experience, even, even working, you know, working through technology. So, um, you know, so, so that would be the thing that I would say. It's just I've been very, very pleasantly surprised. And, you know, to put a happy ending to my story, you know, here it is now the 1st of July when you and I are recording this. My calendar is just as full as it was at the beginning of March. The only thing that's missing now is the travel. And, you know, the Atlanta airport gets old after a while. So, um, <laughs> you know, so I, I think I can live without the travel. But, but it's just that I think so many people have found that, that the online experience is still, it's still spiritually meaningful. And people can still have really, really meaningful encounters, not only with one another, you know, with me and the, and the, the participants in the course, but most importantly of all with spirit. So, yeah. um, so if yeah. somebody's new to it, I would say, give it a try. You know, yeah. and, and of course, the beautiful thing is, is if I were teaching in Atlanta, that would really limit the participation just to people who, you know, probably within a 30 mile radius. But now, you know, obviously we can hopefully, you know, connect with some people even outside the metro Atlanta area who might want to do this, do this program. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that we do as well. We did a Jerome Loba's uh, workshop. We had to pivot quickly and we were just to reinforce what you're saying we were surprised at how well it worked out so um we're not hesitant we are looking forward to it i was just uh i love how you have been reassuring to folks who are considering that so that's wonderful um thinking about uh the pandemic i want to uh rewind a little bit and and invite you to connect some dots for us because i think it was really powerful what you were saying about embodiment Okay. Um, and that could be a whole other conversation. What is forcing all of us to uh, reevaluate, the, as the cliche goes, the new normal? Um, and what will come out of this tension that has been created for us? The illness that is changing and reshaping culture, economies, politics, everything else, it's embodied. Mm -hmm. it's embodied. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are protecting our bodies. We are protecting the bodies of our loved ones. Mm -hmm. If we layer 
the Black Lives Matter movement and the attention that hopefully all of us are placing on the importance of Black lives, that is embodied. Mm-hmm. Well, that is an identity sense. that is in your skin. And let me layer on one other piece of that too. We just, uh, as you mentioned, we're recording this early in July and uh, June is Pride Month. Mm-hmm. And, you know, queer identity is embodied. So as we recognize how we live our lives in our physical bodies and how we live our spiritual lives in our bodies, is mysticism how do we locate that in our current reality? The first thing I'd like to do is quote a mutual friend of ours, uh, Loretta Coleman Brown, mm-hmm. uh, who, of course, is a um, she was a professor of psychology at Agnes Scott and is now um, a retreat leader like like I am. And much of her focus is on the work of Howard Thurman. You know, he's he, he's a son of Atlanta, so. Howard Thurman, you know, obviously with his connection to Atlanta. Um, Loretta speaks about multiple pandemics. And she's usually is speaking of two pandemics, the pandemic of coronavirus and the pandemic of racism. But you brought up at least a third or a fourth, you know, the pandemic of, of homophobia and the pandemic of transphobia. And... Um, you know, and the, I mean, then you can also add the pandemic of sexism or the pandemic of, you know, really any kind of exclusionary um, system of, you know, systematic oppression or systematic right. exclusion. We see that in how we organize our economy. You know, capitalistic economies tend to be very exclusionary. They're built on a kind of a myth of scarcity, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, and you're right, you know, the, all of this is profoundly embodied. It impacts us in our bodies. And we, um, you know, I, the kind of the, the shadow side of a lot of religious and spiritual work is that it can become very abstracted. It, it's very much about language. It's very much about, you know, symbolism, you know, that kind of thing. And you know, I think language is important because language is a way we connect with one another and it's a way we share meaning. So I'm not saying that we, we need to get rid of language and symbols, but I think that, that we always have to be looking at how do I bring this back into my body, into my heart, into my lungs, into my genitals, into my belly, you know, and, and learning to, um, you know, so learning to sit with the reality in which we find ourselves and the reality of pandemic, whether it's a virus that, you know, the weirdest virus in the world, because many people are just asymptomatic, they're carriers and, and maybe not even necessarily getting a lot of people sick, but then there are those what they call the super carriers and they get what, 20 or 30 people sick. And then, you know, and then, of course, the small percentage who get very, very sick and then the even smaller percentage whose lives are at risk. But, the, but because so many people are sick, those small percentages have still translated into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people worldwide who have lost their lives or who have had debilitating illness. So, you know, it's, this is nothing to, you know, 
to laugh about. It's, it's a profound, you know, scary, scary problem. And what we're going through, this process of social distancing and, and, and self-isolation and, you know, wearing masks and, you know, rethinking, you know, how do we, how do we interact with people? How do we, you know, what is the role of, of you know, like, again, religious work where, where people often sing. Well, singing is a way that the, that the virus can be transmitted. Yeah. You know, so this is why you hear about choirs or churches where suddenly everybody, or weddings where everybody gets infected, you know, funerals because of, you know, the, the, it's like they, they're the perfect storm. You yeah. know, so we're, we're rethinking all of that. Racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, those kinds of things. Um, I mean, not, not everybody gets that those things are evil. Some people are, are blinded by privilege. But fortunately, I, I hope, I believe that more and more people, even those who have social privilege, more and more people are beginning to recognize that, that this is a serious systemic illness that we have to cleanse, purge, again, from our bodies, and I'm speaking both on the individual level, but mm -hmm. also on the corporate level, the body right, of society right, right. as well. So, so the question then, you know, well, what, you know, why are we doing a class on mysticism when we've got all these serious social, you know, and, and physiological problems? And I guess the argument that I would make is, you know, sometimes when the computer isn't working, you need a software upgrade. Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to, to, to get things to get things back on track. And so I think what mystical spirituality really does represent is that kind of software upgrade, that kind of, you know, adopting wisdom, again, wisdom, which in some cases is centuries or even millennia old, but that's still very, very relevant and very much speaks to the reality of the present day. You know, I mentioned Howard Thurman, Howard Thurman, a great a great American mystic has so much does African American was raised Baptist, you know, in segregated Jim Crow, Florida has so much to say to us about how, you know, how bringing spiritual wisdom and spiritual compassion to even to the, the horrific problem, the horrific evil of racism can empower us to make a real difference. Um, on that, that, that physiological side, you've got, Julian of Norwich, the great medieval English mystic who lived during the bubonic plague, mm -hmm. you know, which of course was, was a pandemic that literally killed, I think most scholars think anywhere from 30 to 50% of the population died within an 18 month period. So absolutely, you know, it's funny, but with the people who are, you know, whining about the economy now, I'm like, boy, you know, you don't know how bad it can get, you know, cause that would just, absolutely devastate not you know not only people's lives i mean with that with that much death everybody is touched everybody is left grieving the ones who survive but then also the entire the entire economic structure is disrupted as well and so here is this mystic julian of norwich living during this time and having visions of god and then writing about that and and really bringing some very practical wisdom to bear about you know how to live in these in these really very dangerous very uncertain times, so um, you know what I would say is that you know mysticism may not give us a direct roadmap, but it's like mysticism is a way to learn how to read the map. It's a way mm -hmm. to learn how to how to see the landmarks, how to how to how to find your orientation, find your direction, 
and be able to, to get more of a sense of where we are, where we want to be, and what the path looks like to get from here to there. And, and there's a strong, strong, you know, tradition that, that to be a true mystic, sooner or later, it means being of service to others. Think about the Bodhisattva mm-hmm. vow in Buddhism, mm-hmm. you know, this, uh, this idea that, you know, that I will even delay my enlightenment in the interest of helping all sentient beings become enlightened. Again, that's very flowery spiritual language, but, but it has a real world application, you know, that, that I, you used the word kenosis a few minutes ago. That's this kind of self-giving, self-emptying, self-surrendering kind of position of, of profound compassion that says, you know, this, this thing we're doing, this spiritual project we're in the middle of isn't just about my comfort, my, you know, mm-hmm. having a cool experience with God, but it's actually about radical solidarity, primarily with those who suffer. Right, you know, right, so, right. so the spirit, you know, back to, back to the, you know, the, the groups we've been talking about, you know, people of color, queer people, uh, women, um, people who, who lack, you know, economic uh, resources. You know, that's where the spirit, the spirit has always gravitated toward, towards the people who have been, have been excluded. Yes, yeah, 100% of the time. Yeah. And even excluded by institutional religions. So, you know, so again, that's back to that mysticism has one foot in the institution and one foot out because the mystics have always been the one who've been the most radically present to suffering wherever it occurs, but not just to make a fetish out of suffering, but to, but to be, you know, actively engaged in how do we bring transformation to this? How do we bring healing and bring new life? Yeah. Yeah. Agreeing with everything 100%. And, and I would add one other small piece of it too, and that would be, the when we start from a, a mystic foundation, not knowing is okay. Not knowing is that entry. Um, and when the world turns upside down, as you, you know, we're having the sensation of being comfortable with not knowing, uh, really puts you steps ahead of people who feel very tied to knowing, controlling, and thinking that because they uh, were raised with a particular belief system, a particular way of living, a particular way of doing things that, hey, I, I've got this tied up. And it's like, yeah, but, but you don't. <laughs> you know, it, Jesus, to, to use just one example, you know, Jesus is most kind of, trenchant criticism was aimed at the pharisees the pharisees were like they were the institutional religious leaders of his culture you know and so it wasn't like you know jesus was trying to criticize the jews i mean that's how it's been misinterpreted but he was he was actually going after kind of the nice moral upstanding you know the kind of people that that you know that would win awards from the city, you know, get the key to the city, you know, that kind of thing, you know, that they would, they would be, you know, their high school, of course they didn't have high schools, but their high school would pick them as the outstanding <laughs> alumnus, you know, or whatever, you know, the, the, the respectable folks, yeah. you know, and, and Jesus, again, this kind of outsider mystic, he comes after them and says, look, what, what you guys are doing is actually causing as much harm as good, if not more. 
and you know and so and it's fascinating then that what did jesus followers do they just created a new institution you know <laughs> and then and then so why there have been reformations like the protestant reformation to, to try to you know break free out of that and then creating more institutions so it's 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 almost like this interesting dance that that we we go into uh you know, that, that human nature, we seem to like to codify things, but then as soon as we codify things, there needs to be another movement to kind of bust, bust the doors open and, and yeah, bring a, yeah. new, a new spirit of freedom and possibility. Yeah. But, I, but mysticism, if I am understanding it correctly, the, the only thing, the only code is God. There, there's, no, there's no pillars other than well, you know, there's teachings, you know, and, but, but even the teachings disagree. But what do the teachings point to, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they point, well, the good ones point beyond themselves. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? right. That's so, what I'm saying is the, the, you know, the teaching is, you know, be, be cautious of teaching. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. You know. Unless You've got it's it all wrong. Or... Don't worship me. You've got it all wrong. You know, so, uh, you, know uh, you even, See this with Jesus, you know, Jesus say, told one person, he says, look, nobody is good. Only God is good, you right. know, and, and, and it was because the person had called him good, you know, and it's like, you know, what is Jesus doing here? Well, he is, you know, he's trying to get away from that tendency we have to put people on pedestals because once we put them on a pedestal, we ta stop taking them seriously, you know. Yeah. And uh, Dorothy Day, the amazing woman who, who worked with the poorest of the poor in Manhattan for many years, and who is now being considered to become a saint in the Catholic Church. She was a devout Catholic. But somebody asked her when she was still alive, you know, will you be a saint someday? And she said, oh, heavens, I hope not. <laughs> they, said, they said, what do you mean? And she said, I don't want to be dismissed so easily. What a, you know, oh, wow. What a, what a true wisdom there, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Don't make a little statue of me that people can put on their dashboards and then they ignore what I actually am saying, you know? So, so, so back to our topic, mysticism is get rid of the statues, get rid of the little holy cards, the laminated cards and get back to the, the teachings because the teachings again, point beyond themselves and point to that, that divine spirit that right. again, where do you find it? You find it in your heart. You know, and and you find it in the sky and in the stars and in and in in loved ones' eyes, and you know, Ignatius of Loyola said, "Find God in all things." You know, yeah. this yeah. this idea. You know, the, the Buddha. You know, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Well, why would you want to kill the Buddha? Because again, you need to find that Buddha within yourself. Don't yeah. you know? Don't don't put all that energy into into being devoted to some external Buddha. Find the Buddha within. Yeah. So. No, well, I, I, and that's, that's a, uh, b before we wrap it up, I want to say that I did speak to Jesus earlier this afternoon and he did say that you were good, Carl. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, since, since, since said, I've been endorsed by Jesus, I can't, he's, I can't. He said, if you have to, if yeah, if you have to sit down with a teacher, Carl McCollman is the one to do it with. Okay. And, and he said that we all need to sign up for your workshop in the fall. Right. So, so don't disappoint Jesus. Take this class. Is that... uh, well, Carl, I will, uh, I will remind people how to uh, sign up and how to find you. And mm -hmm. there's more where this came from. We're just scratching the surface. Sure. Of course. Of course.
Yeah, and and I know that that on your website there's more of a description of the actual program. Yes. And so um so hopefully people can go and check that out if they have any questions or whatever, you know, let you know or let me know and you know, we'll take it from there. And we start yeah. what a September 28th, I believe. Monday night, September 28th. 7 weeks mm. ending on November 9th. All right, wonderful. So starting at 7 p.m. Eastern time. 